0: that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Over the last few weeks, when we first started, I wanted to draw our attention to the promise that Messiah makes in Matthew chapter 16, that he will build his congregation he will build his kahal. That's the Greek word is ekklesia, which is, means called out ones. It's talking about people. He would build up his people who would become his body. Say his body is sort of a metaphor, but in another sense, it's actual. It's a metaphor in the sense that we are individuals, but yet in the other hand, there's something of a reality because as individuals, we're connected together as a family, in another sense, we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, and therefore we are His people. And we are told He is the head of the body, of which we are the members of His body. And therefore we are to follow Him. In Matthew 16, when Yeshua gathered with His disciples, and I shared this a few weeks ago, He was at Caesarea Philippi in the northern part of Israel, a very lush, green, watery area. And it was there when he gathered with his disciples, he asked them, who do individuals say that I am? And they all began to tell him that the ones that they associated Yeshua with were individuals like Yohanan the Immerser, John the Baptist, men like Jeremiah, Men like Elijah, all good people, all good men. Individuals that were tremendous examples and were leaders among the people of Israel. And then he looked at them because as good as all those individuals are, their answers were insufficient. For then he looks at his disciples and he says to them, But who do you say that I am? Now that I've spent these nearly three years with you, you've seen what I've done, you've heard what I've taught, you've seen who I am, who do you say that I am? And Peter stands up in one voice reflecting the totality of his disciples. He says, To Yeshua, Atahu, that's the Hebrew. I happened to look at it this morning because it just dawned on me. What did he say? What did they say to him in Hebrew? And they said, Atahu, you are, Bain Elohim, the Son of God, Hachayim, the Living One. You are the Son of God of the Living God. Now that response is an incredible response. For they acknowledged him with respect to his humanity, but they also saw beyond merely his humanity to see his divine nature. And on one occasion, in Luke, it's recorded chapter 11, but it's also recorded in Matthew chapter 6. But in Luke chapter 11, when they see Yeshua praying, this is what I want to draw attention to this morning. When they see Yeshua praying, they ask him, would you teach us to pray like John had prayed? And I find that imploring of these disciples to be rather unique because they don't say, would you teach us to pray like we just saw you pray? But rather they say, would you teach us to pray like John prayed? I don't think they were saying John was a better prayer than you, but I think what they were saying as John's original disciples who followed John's leading and said earlier, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, The one who had said, he must increase, but I must decrease. And therefore, he told his own disciples to follow the one whom he was heralding. I think the reason they drew attention to John was because Yeshua prayed just like John, not less than John, but just like John. And John must have impressed them with his prayers, Now, the reason why I want to talk a little bit about prayer is because Yeshua said, I will build my ecclesia, my congregation, my body, my church, if you will. I will build my kahal. That's an incredible promise. He says he will do it. So he's the one that will bring this to reality. Secondly, he will build it. He just doesn't call it into reality. He builds it. He doesn't just create it, he's building it. And when we read Paul, we're told exactly how it is he's building it. He's building it on the shoulders of individuals. Paul tells us that the congregation of believers is built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers, and all gifted individuals throughout the course of history. We stand on the shoulders of those who preceded us. And thus he's building it stone by stone, wood by wood, mortar by mortar throughout this wall of which he is the chief cornerstone. He's the foundation upon which he is building. And that's why he says those words to Paul, uh, to Peter that and upon this rock, the confession of Peter that indeed Yeshua is the Messiah the son of the living God. It is upon that reality, not just the statement, but the reality that the statement relates to that he's building up his ecclesia. And notice it's a promise, I will build it. That phrase reminds me of none other than Nehemiah. Because when Nehemiah was building the walls around Jerusalem and he was being sort of tempted to come down from those walls. He said, I'm doing the work of God, and I can't come down. Yeshua says, I am doing this work, and I will complete it. And thus, Paul says that this will go on until the fullness of the Gentiles become in, and then his attention will return once again to his people Israel. He's building up his body, and the body that he is building, he tells us, He says, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, right? Some translations say hell, but, you know, the Greek word for hell in the New Testament is Gehenna, which is not the word used here. The word here is Hades. And the reason I think Yeshua draws our attention to Hades in distinction from Gehenna is because Hades is the abode of the dead, whereas Gehenna was the abode of the wicked, and there was a time when the righteous were in the abode of the dead, awaiting the completed work of Messiah, from which they would then be released from that abode from the dead. You remember Yeshua told that story of the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man, uh, when he died, went to Hades, and the, uh, Lazarus had gone to the place of Abraham's bosom, paradise, well, the abode of the suffering and the abode of the righteous was in what was known as Hades, the abode of the dead. But those righteous were in a place of bliss, those of the unrighteous were in a place of suffering. But now that Messiah has gone, has, has suffered and died and resurrected and gone to heaven, now the abode of the righteous is emptied. And now when individuals die, we go into the very presence of God. That's why Paul says to be absent from the bodies, to be in the presence of the Lord, not to be in the bosom of Abraham. So Yeshua is saying that when he would build his congregation, even the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. Now, I just want you to think about that imagery for a moment. Gates. What do gates do? Gates keep people out. Or they keep people in. You know, coming here to, the, to California from the East Coast, there aren't too many that I remember, too many communities in the Northeast where you, where, which were gated communities, let alone gated properties. I mean, when we came out here in every home, it's like walled. And every home has this, these gates in front of it, you know. And We have gates in front, not of our whole property, but along the sides of our property. Never seen that in, you know, as commonplace on the East Coast. On the East Coast, our home, and by the way, I never had a garage before I came to California. But on the East Coast, your property just morphed into another person's property. You know, you're just there. And I remember my neighbor next door never mowed his lawn, and it was always like huge, and my lawn was always pristine, you know, always pristine, and so one time, i mowed it, and I said, you know what, I'm just going straight across, and I just mowed his, the lawn, you know, and then I put a bill on, it on his door, no, I didn't, but the point is, gates keep people out, and they keep people in, so think of the imagery, He's saying that he would build his congregation of believers and the gates of hell would not be able to keep him and his people out. The point is, our job is to reach beyond the gates into Hades to pull people out. That's what happened to you and I. We all were behind those gates until someone... Or God's word and somehow was conveyed to us and we responded to that word and the gates of Hades no longer prevailed against us and we were free and we were released and we have eternal life. You know, for years I always thought that the gates were somehow coming after us, you know, and I realized that's not what it says. The gates are like a defensive thing. We are to storm the gates and bring people out. And that's what Yeshua said he would do in the building of his congregation. So now what I want us to think about is how does this work get started? Where do you begin? And I think the place to begin is prayer. That's where we must begin. We could think, we could reflect, we could do, but the first thing we need to think about is prayer and coming before the Lord, and so if you will, I want to just share with you a few passages that have struck me on the significance of prayer, the power of prayer, not only its importance but its significance. So now turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter uh, chapter nine. I made reference to it before. Uh, excuse me, chapter eleven. I said nine, but Luke chapter eleven. It's there that we read the very first verse. Now, Yeshua was praying, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, and this is a smaller version of what we read in Matthew 6, which only serves to tell us that he taught about prayer periodically. These are not the only times he taught about prayer. He taught about prayer on numerous occasions. And therefore, we have different contexts in which he taught about prayer. And we have different extents of the lesson that he gave. So here, it's a shorter version. He simply says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Now, he excludes here, "Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But that's included in Matthew. But here, he simply says, your kingdom come give us this day or each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is debted to us and lead us not into temptation and left out here is um, lead us not into temptation what is that? <laughs> but deliver us from evil <laughs> sorry but uh, so in any case it's shorter but it's still significant now I want you to think about just two things about the significance of prayer that's reflected here and in the parable that Yeshua is going to tell right after this instruction, which I want to, I'll bring your attention to, but don't go there before me. You know, don't steal my thunder. But the two things I want you to see is that prayer is meant to be transformational and relational. Prayer is meant to enhance our relationship with God and prayer is meant to result in transforming us and the world around us. That's what prayer is about. Relationship and transformation. Connection and change. And that's what the prayer is, right? I mean, it starts off. Father, that's a relationship. He's calling us to pray to God, not only though we can as our Father and our King, our Father and our God, our Most High God, all of those things are adequate, but what God or what Messiah wants us to know is that we can have a deep personal relationship with God, much like and exactly like a father and a son in life can be, although it is ideal, so he says when you speak to God speak to him as your father have a relationship with God prayer is meant to bring about our relate to deepen our relationship with him so he says our father and look at this if you have a relationship with our father you know something about about him hallowed be your name. It's not just the name of God that's mentioned here, but the name meaning the character, the being, the person of God. He's saying we need to get to know him. And when we get to know him, we then hallow, make holy who he is. We make holy who he is by the words by which we address him. By the things about which we adore him with. How we acknowledge him and how we praise him. And we also hallow, make holy his name by the life we live, which we can only live if he transforms us in such a way as to enable us to live it. So on the one hand, prayer is meant to deepen our relationship. And in deepening our relationship to get to know him more so that we can hallow his name by our words and, ex- and uh, exclamations about him. But also by our life and our actions and our attitudes that are to reflect our relationship with him. He goes on to say that we're to pray your kingdom come. In other words, we're interested in our father having his way. We're concerned about our relationship with our father, and so we want our father's will to be accomplished, and certainly we want his kingdom, the fulfillment of his purposes and his plans to come to fruition. That's the significance of the messianic age. All that God intends to do is done at that time. So by praying your kingdom come, we're saying, Lord, we understand who you are. We understand what you're doing, and we are on board with you, for you are our father and our relationship with him is deepened but then he goes on to say we're to learn to depend upon him give us each day what it is we need for today it's not that we can't think about tomorrow but we look to God for what we need now we need not worry about tomorrow but we can plan for tomorrow and be focused on what God is doing in and through us and providing for us today And then the transformation takes us that we can be forgivers as God is a forgiving God. That we can actually let people off the hook. We can actually be like God in that we can be gracious to others and say, I forgive you. Or would you forgive me? Or please, I'm sorry. And it's okay. It's all over. It's in the past. That requires tremendous transformation. And God is in the business of transforming us. Prayer is meant to deepen our relationship and to result in transforming us. The transformation is a miracle. Think about this. The transformation is the miracle of God working in the hearts of individuals. Now, with that thought in mind, I want to draw your attention to two episodes that I recently read about that struck me with regard to this whole issue this whole issue of prayer the first or the first passage you don't need to turn but is found in genesis chapter 18 it's there that abraham is visited by the lord it says the lord the sacred name of god jehovah if you will appeared to abraham and when abraham lifts up his eyes he see he sees three men one of whom he addresses as the Lord, sacred name of God, every time he speaks to that one. So it would appear that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Messiah along with two angels at his side. And in Genesis 18, for the third time, the Lord repeats a promise. The first time he mentions it, it's in Genesis 15, verse 4. You will have a son as an heir. The second time he mentions it, it is in Genesis chapter 17, I'm going to say around verse 10, where again the Lord reiterates his promise to Abraham, you will have a son through Sarah, your wife. The third time, it's reiterated in chapter 18, which is where I've drawn your attention. And when the Lord speaks to Abraham and says, look, you're going to have a son. In fact, he says, I'm going to visit you this time next year. And your wife, Sarah, Will bear you a son. Now, Sarah was hearing in the doorway by the tent, and evidently Messiah, the Lord, the one Abraham's speaking to, his back was to the, t- the opening. And as he's speaking to Abraham with his back to the doorway of the tent, he says to Abraham, Why did your wife laugh? And I, if I was Abraham, I'd say, I don't know, I know nothing about it. I have no idea she should not have done it, and I'm sorry to you, uh, you know. But the Lord, and then it goes on to say, he says this to Sarah. And Sarah says, I didn't laugh. Talking about lying. No, I didn't laugh. And Abraham said, I don't know anything. You know? And the Lord says, but you did laugh. See, he knows everything that's going on in our heart, in our soul, in our mind, through our mouths. He knows everything. We can't fool him. I remember when I was a young believer learning about the sovereignty of God. I tried to think of a thought that God wouldn't think I was thinking and then stop thinking it before he knew I stopped thinking it, and he knew this whole thing going on, you know. And then he knew what I ended up thinking about anyway. But God is knows everything. And so he says, "But you did laugh," you know. And then this really interesting phrase The angel says, is anything, this is my translation, I mean mine, the New International or whatever, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, that's a bad translation because the word that's used there is the word pele, not the Brazilian guy. Of course, most of you probably don't remember him, but soccer, right, Brazilian soccer guy. You had to be our age, Jag, you know, to get that. But in any case, pele is the word for wonderful. And so it means wonderful, miraculous things. So when he says, is anything too hard, what the Lord is saying is, is anything too miraculous for God to do? It's the same word. By the way, this word is only used of God. Only used of God. It's the same word in Isaiah 9, 6. Wonderful counselor. Pele is the same word. So what the angel or what the Lord said to Abraham is, is anything too miraculous for the Lord? Is there a miracle the Lord cannot do? Not just is there anything too difficult, but is there anything of a miraculous nature that God cannot do if he so desires to do it? And so a woman at 90 and a man at 100, a woman who is barren, can be made by God's grace to bear a child. Oh, one further, even a woman who is a virgin, who is Uh, Not knowing a man, God can enable to have a child if he so chooses. Whatever miraculous thing. Remember what Isaiah said to Ahaz? Whatever it is, at the height above or the depths below, whatever it is, ask of the Lord and he will give you a sign. Is anything too miraculous in nature for God to do? And so what was going on was this was an answer to Abraham's prayer to have a child. The Lord says, I will build my body. Prayer is meant to deepen our relationship. It's to transform our lives. And he does this miraculously by intervening in ways which he, o- he alone can intervene. But here's another one. I do want you to turn here. Look at Genesis chapter 24. This is one of the most remarkable chapters in all of Scripture. And it's such a a a full chapter telling us how it was that Isaac, the miraculous son of Abraham and Sarah, receives his wife, Rebekah. And God, or I should say Abraham, calls his servant. In this chapter, he's unnamed. But perhaps this is Eliezer, who was named earlier in chapter 17 or so. And Abraham tells Eliezer to go back to Haran, to his people of origin, to his family, to get a wife for his son, Isaac. And he tells him that his angel will guide him to, to get the, the wife for Isaac. He says, the servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Looking at verse 6. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said, see to it, you do not take my son back there because the Lord promised him this land. He doesn't want him to leave the land of promise. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Now, here's the neat thing. This servant is added to Abraham's household, you might say. If he's Eliezer, he's a Syrian, right? He's from Damascus. And when he gets to Haran, when he gets to the place where he's to look for a wife for Isaac, he prays. And I love his prayer. Check this out. It says that he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening when the women, of course it would be the women, go out to draw water. Men wouldn't do that, right? (laughs) Okay. They were stronger in those days. But in any case, verse 12. And he said, this is his prayer. Check this out. He says, O Lord God of my master Abraham. I love that. It's not that he isn't his God either, but he respects Abraham so much that his God is the God of Abraham, and that's how he addresses him. This says a lot about Abraham, doesn't it, as it does about God himself. And look what he said, look what he prays. He says, please grant me success today and show steadfast love. This is the Hebrew word chesed, covenantal love love of the covenant, love of promise that he made to Abraham. He says, show steadfast love to my master, Abraham. I love this. You know, he's concerned for his master, Abraham. He doesn't want to go back empty-handed because he doesn't want Abraham to lose out. He wants God to bless Abraham. I, I just love this. And he says, behold, I'm standing by the spring of water. Don't you love that too? As if God doesn't know where he is. He says, Lord, I'm standing here. No, 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 look this way. I'm right here, you know. No, God knows exactly where he is. But I love this. This is the relationship aspect, right? Lord, you know my frame. You just tell him. He already knows. And so he's saying, look, I'm here by the I know you know, but I want to tell you, you know. And he says, I'm by this uh, uh, where'd he go? And behold, I'm standing by the spring, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. See them, look. And he says, let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. But get this. Let that one then respond to me. Drink, and I will also water your camels. Now Listen. He said, he didn't, He didn't. said I'm going to say to her, give me something to drink. But he didn't say, could you please give me something to drink and would you mind watering my camels? No, he's only going to say to her, would you mind giving me something to drink? But she in response is going to say, this is what he's praying now, I'm praying, Lord, that the one that I ask for a drink will not only give me a drink, but will say, hey, and I'm willing to water your camels too. Now that may not seem like a lot, but the servant took with him 10 camels. And on average, I learned, each camel can drink up to 20 gallons of water. That means we're talking about 200 gallons of water. Have you ever tried to carry 10 gallons of water? You know, or milk, you know, you carry those things. You say, man, I better be doing my curls, you know, because it gets old. And this is, she's got to go, and how, how much water could she carry in her water thing you know how much water could be carried there and she's got to go to the well dip out the water take the water walk over to the camel wait for the camel to drink come on you know let's go still thirsty all right you know and she's going to do this like 10 times I mean who's going to do that you might as well just take your camels and go home because no one's going to do that right But that's what he prays. Why? Because there is nothing too miraculous in nature that God cannot do, if I got that right. There's nothing too miraculous that God can't do. Sure, you know, God says, all right, all right, I'll do this. So he says, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant By this, I shall know that you've shown steadfast love to my master. And look at this, verse 15. Before he finished speaking, Rebecca shows up. You know? That reminds me of what Yeshua said. He knows what you need even before you ask. Right? He wasn't even finished. God's already on the march. I got it covered, man. I know exactly what you're thinking. I know what you're asking. And I'm ready to provide. And he does provide. And Rebecca, uh, how long might that have taken? I don't know how far away the camels were from the water and all that. How, a couple of hours, I guess? I don't know. But now look how he retells the story. When he comes to her father, Laban, or Bethuel, when he comes to her, her father, he's telling them what had transpired. And you see this in verse 45 or 49 or so. He says, I came today to the spring. And said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I'm standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And then she will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman. Look at verse 45. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca appeared. Ah, now we know something else. You don't have to pray audibly for God to hear you, you know? He was praying in his heart. He was praying in his spirit. There's nothing wrong with lifting up your voice in prayer, and there's nothing wrong with keeping your voice quiet and just saying, Lord, you know my heart, and thinking the thought. Sometimes we don't know how to think in our hearts, and we just say, Lord, just you know what I desire. I don't even know how to begin to pray about this. The Lord knows it from the beginning, because prayer is relational, and it's transformational. It changed Abraham, Rebecca, Isaac, the servant. God intervened. And one other example I'd like to draw to your attention. If you'd like to turn with me, you can. I won't take a long time in this. Time is moving. But if you look in the book of Nehemiah, another fascinating account of prayer. In the very first chapter, we have the exile has come to an end. The Jewish people are no longer in Babylon. They're no longer in bondage. They've been welcomed to return. And Jewish people have been returning. And now Nehemiah, approximately 400, let's just call it that for the sake of argument, about 100 years has gone by or so. Nehemiah, is a Jewish man still in the capital of Persia, same place Esther and Mordecai will be in the, book during, in the book of Esther. And he is, if you look at the very last phrase in chapter 1, he says, now I was cupbearer to the king. He had a very important position as the wine tester for the king. It was a risky job, but it was a very influential job because you had the, heir, the ear of the king... All the time You're always in his presence And so you had to be a quality kind of person Not just a risk taker And Nehemiah was that kind of person Now here's the interesting thing When his brother And I think it's his literal brother And some others come back from Jerusalem Nehemiah asks two questions How are the people? How is the city? Isn't that amazing? Nehemiah is concerned for God's people and he's concerned for God's city. And so he says, how are the people? How is the city? And he says, the people are struggling and the city is in ruins and the walls around the city have not been completed over these hundred years or so that we have been back in our homeland." Nehemiah is not happy to hear these words. In fact, if you look at verse 4, he said, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven. This affected him deeply. And he just mourned and prayed and fasted and wept. Someone has said that when you pray for something um, sporadically, or minimally, you're really not praying for anything. You really have a whim about something. But when you are persistent in your prayers, you really have a heart throb, a concern for this matter. And you're desirous of God to make a difference. Nehemiah felt that way about his people and about God's city. And so he fasted and he prayed. Now, if you read his prayer, you'll notice the relationship he has with God. His prayer begins by saying, Oh, Lord God of heaven, look what he knows about God. You're the great and awesome God. You keep your covenants. You're promising keeping God. You have steadfast love. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. And you love those who follow you and keep your commandments. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. I love that expression. He uses it again later on. Look at verse 11. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to my prayer. Pay attention to me. Be mindful of my prayer that I'm about to bring before you. This is a prayer of adoration. This is a prayer of relationship. May your ear, he doesn't say, hear what I say. May your ear, he looks at God as A relational father. May your eyes, I know you're watching me and you're concerned for me. You're looking out for me. May your eyes be upon me. These are relational. He's not talking to an idol. He's not talking to an idea. He's not just hoping. He's looking to a person that he has a relationship with. And he's looking for transformation. He confesses his sin. Read that passage. He says, Lord, forgive us of our sins. And notice he always used the first person plural, our sins. We have sinned. We've disobeyed. He never dis- disassociates himself from his people. He never looks at himself loftier than another. He sees that the same sins that they have committed, if he did not commit them, he certainly could have just like them. He's not like the Pharisees about about which Yeshua had said, if we had been there, we would have repented long ago. No, no, no. He said, if you had been there, you would have sinned just like them. We are no different than our neighbor. We are like one another. We are sinners in need of God's grace. And so when he confesses his sin, he confesses it plurally, unitedly, corporately, forgive us. And then he says this. He then asks God for help. Would you do the miraculous thing? And look what his miraculous thing is. Would you be attentive, verse 11, to the prayer of your servant, to the prayers of your servant, who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today? Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the king before whom he must speak. And remember the Persian rule. If you go before the king and the king has not asked for you to come, it could mean your life. And so like Esther, Nehemiah is in the same situation. And so now he prays for the miraculous. And he says, would you grant me mercy before this man for I'm going to speak to him. Now check this out. In verse 1, It tells us in chapter 1 that all of this praying came about in the month of Kislev in the 20th year of the reign of the king. But if you look at chapter 2, when he gets to speak to the king, it's in the month of Nisan in the 20th year. Kislev is comparable to our November-December. Nisan is comparable to our March or April. So December, January, February, March, April. Five months go by before the door is open for him to speak to the king. That tells us his ongoing prayer began when they first came to him, and it continued on until he spoke to the king. Now in closing, look back at Luke chapter 11. I want you to take a look at this parable that he tells about prayer and the answer to prayer. And he said to them, verse 5, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, this is in the perfect tense, ask and continually ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and continually seek, and you will find. Knock, and continually knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who continually asks, receives, and the one who continually seeks, finds. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you If his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now let me say at the outset, this parable says something about the importance of persistence. But repetition and persistence are two different things. We're told not to be repetitious in our prayers, but we are encouraged to be persistent and ongoing with our prayers. And while this may be about persistence, this is about something more important than persistence. This is about friendship. If you notice, the individual who is in a quandary has two friends. He has the friend who can provide him what he needs, and he has the friend who's visiting who has something he needs to provide. In other words, this man is a relational person. Like Nehemiah was a relational person with those who visited from him. Like Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, was a relational person. In other words, this is a relational issue. Prayer is meant to deepen our relationship with our heavenly father. Much like this man has a friendship with one he can go to and ask for help in time of need. So on the one hand, this is about being friends to one another. And most importantly, being a friend of God. The second thing that's important about this parable is that the one who is helping, now check this out and because I read it, a second time, a third time, after I had read uh, a little devotional on it. Notice that the one that he comes to ask for help from, he's not begrudging him help. If you notice what he says, he says, look, I'd love to help you, but I'm already in bed, get this, with my children. In other words, he has a prior commitment to his children who are in bed with him. Now think about this. If his children said to him, Dad, I need to go to the restroom. Is that father going to get up and get him there? If the son or daughter that's with him said, Dad, I need something to drink. Is he going to get up and get him something to drink? He's getting up. If that child starts coughing and hacking and not feeling well and says, Dad, I don't feel well. Is that father going to get up? He is. What he was saying to his friend is not that I don't want to help you, but what he was saying to his friend is, you know, I'm with my family. God wants us in his family. And it's in that family connection that God is like this, like this, you know. We're in bed with our heavenly father. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't be persistent and ask and keep on asking. But this isn't about a begrudging father. This is about a father who delights to give. Therefore, don't stop asking because he wants to give. Like Nehemiah over a long period of time. Like Eliezer the servant. But in that case, before we finish, sometimes before we finish God's answers, sometimes we pray for decades and then God's answers. How many of us know of individuals that individuals have prayed for for decades and on their deathbeds, finally, they come to know the Lord? How many of you know individuals that you pray, and the next day someone calls you and says, hey, I just invite the Lord into my life. God is sovereign, but we must be praying. If he's going to build his body, it will start with prayer. Prayer that flows from a relationship with him and prayer that expects the miraculous to be performed by him. And that's why I believe he says at the very end, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will that your heavenly father give you whatever you need? Look what he says. will give you his very own spirit to those who ask. There is nothing greater that God can give you than himself. And there's nothing greater that we will ever receive than his spirit. And if you know Yeshua as Messiah, he's already given his spirit to you. And therefore, when we come before him in prayer, we come as our heavenly father. We have a relationship. And we come in hope and expectation because we already have the greatest thing he can give us himself. And therefore, we can come in faith and in hope, anticipating great things for the future. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your grace toward us. What a wonderful passage this is when we read it fully and completely. We are at home with you. We are surrounded by your grace and we are comforted by your presence. But we come Like Abraham's servant came, and we come like you instruct us to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, because you desire and you delight in doing great things for your people. Help us, Lord, to be builders with you. You're the builder, we are the instruments in your hand by which your congregation will be built. So use us, and may you enable us to build up Beth Ariel as a mature, healthy body, and as a body made up of new individuals that come to know you as Savior. We pray you might do this through us, for we ask in Messiah's name. Amen. Let's stand. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org.